0: Hello and welcome to the Muslim Care Centre podcast, where we speak with community stakeholders, experts and individuals with lived experience regarding events of personal, social or cultural importance. The Muslim Care Centre podcast is recorded on the unceded territory of our Musqueam brothers and sisters, who are First Nations people of BC. At the Muslim Care Centre, we provide an open platform for discussion. Therefore, the views and opinions expressed by our guests do not necessarily represent those of the hosts, the Muslim Care Centre or the Muslim Food Bank and Community Services. If you support the work of the Muslim Care Centre, please donate via e-transfer to Muslim Care Centre at MuslimFoodBank.com. On today's episode, we speak with Dr. Gohar Sheikh, Director of Align Health Centre in Burnaby and founder of House Call for Humanity, on his work in addressing the complex relationship between pain, poverty, mental health and addictions. According to research published by the Mayo Clinic, chronic pain and mental health disorders are not only common in the general population, but studies suggest that a relationship exists between these two conditions. In addition to depression, anxiety, and substance use disorders, individuals with chronic pain are at risk of other mental health problems, including suicide. In 2020, there have been over 1,300 deaths linked to drug overdoses in British Columbia, Many of those who turn to illegal drugs initially do so to manage pain. As part of the Muslim Care Center's multidisciplinary approach to addiction recovery and mental well-being, we have helped facilitate chiropractic care in partnership with House Call for Humanity to vulnerable individuals on Vancouver's downtown east side.
1: All right, uh, Dr. Gohar Sheikh, my good friend and pal for, I think, uh, 20 years. Thank you for, for joining us and, and making your time and your busy schedule for this uh this podcast and this um, interview. So uh, your great work just personally has helped me with my back pain, lower back pain. I tore my rotator cuff and really there was nobody else that could help the way that you did. And and really within a short period of time, uh, the pain was gone and uh, I was healed from my respective torn rotator cuff and my back pain. So thank you, uh, Dr. Gohar. Alaspanta has given you a great gift and that uh, we really appreciate your work. And I know not only myself, but uh, the dozens of the people in the community that are your patients, uh, they, they, they've really gotten a lot of benefits. So thank you again. So now just getting started, uh, an introduction to yourself uh, for those that don't know who you are and just to introduce who you are, Elin, uh, your clinic and, and your mission of, of how you, you got into the space of manual medicine and, and your vision and mission uh, in your career. Thank you so much for the
2: warm introduction, Tariq. And alhamdulillah, it's a great pleasure uh, to join you here on this forum, on this format. And uh, and yes, it's a blessing from Allah SWT to be in this role where uh, I have the opportunity to, to to help people in the community. Uh, and it's, it's a great privilege uh, and a great honor to do so. Um, you ask about uh, sort of the uh, the onset and how um, I entered this uh career and and how manual medicine became sort of the forefront of our focus um, if i take you to a short story way back in my university days when i used to play football um, at that time i had written my mcats and was heading towards med school and i had separated my shoulder in a small injury and uh, i was i was not in med school yet i was just uh, entering and writing the license uh, the entrance exams so I went to the big university hospital on campus, um, and of course they took a look at me and said your shoulder is indeed separated, and put me in a little arm sling, gave me some anti-inflammatories, and sent me home. And I thought that's that's great, uh, but for some reason I felt a little deflated from that. Uh, I was just I don't know expecting something else for some reason. So um, one of my buddy saw me in an arm sling a day or two later and he said what happened and I told him and he said oh you know you should go see my chiropractor just off campus here and I thought well I'm going to be uh, entering medicine so it's good to be familiar with all of these sort of uh, ancillary medical specialties and I had never been to a chiropractor so I went to go see this doctor and uh, that was when I had my first adjustment And the doctor told me uh, before that, he said, you know, you do have a separated shoulder. You'll still have a separated shoulder uh, after we finish here, but your separated shoulder will be healing. It will be healing at a different level. And you'll be quite aware of that. So long story short, I had my first adjustment. I got off the bed and I thought, wow, uh, I'd never experienced such a thing where I could actually tell my body was now in a better position to heal that shoulder and I could feel it happening. And that was when I switched over to manual medicine. And I thought, this is the the realm that I want to work in. So that was the origins of it. And that was back in Toronto. And uh, after graduating and um, uh, during my schooling years, one of the influential factors I'll share with you quickly is that uh, between my second and third year, which is the last summer we have off. I did a volunteer mission with the World Health Organization. And at that time it was uh, civil war was running rampant in Sri Lanka. And so they sent us to Colombo and I was there for seven weeks uh, under United Nations umbrella and doing volunteer medical work. So I was only a second year student. I hadn't really done much uh, of the practical um, internship yet. Uh, more of the scientific knowledge. But once we got there, they threw us right into the hospital and they put us right on the front lines. And so we were doing surgeries, we were delivering babies, we were doing all kinds of treatments. So that really opened up my eyes to a couple of things. One, the the real power and benefit of manual medicine. Two, the real power and benefit of going to help those people in need. So those are kind of the greatest influential factors that I could share with you, you know, in a, in a nutshell.
1: And 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 one is obviously to have a powerful modality to help alleviate people's physical pain, their physical pain, their back pain, their their posture. Their, and, and a lot of people, especially outside of North America in developing countries, uh, when they develop a, a certain kind of um, improper posture or Back pain they think that that's it uh, either go for surgery or heavily medicate with pharmaceuticals and a lot of people do that here as well and so a lot of destructive tendencies when people are in physical pain is uh, alcohol and drug addiction and these type of things and so pain is really uh, uh either physical or emotional pain is is masked by by addictive behaviors and affecting people's mental health and anecdotally yeah. Uh, I know with your work, you've treated thousands and thousands and thousands of people throughout your career. And so maybe just getting back to pain specifically and sure. just here, here in North America and, and in your clinic you in jumped, Burnaby.
2: You jumped right into it, uh, Tarek, you jumped right into the, the thick of it. So uh, everything you said is, is, is right on and is really in the current conversation, has been in the current conversation for the last five years. Uh, and, and the the opioid crisis, the narcotic crisis, the fentanyl crisis um, is really the manifestation of what you said. So to put things into context, um, I always like to, you know, you, you talked about pain and the management of pain and how um, uh, surgery and drugs are often uh, the first choices or the most, uh, Um, the choices that people are most aware of, or the choices that people are most sort of uh, funneled towards. And that's true. And where the problem lies is not in surgery or in the pharmaceuticals themselves, because uh, we have very well-trained, highly specialized surgeons performing amazing work. We have a lot of research into a lot of specialized pharmaceuticals that can help people with specific needs. I think the problem lies and where the problem is originated is the fact that, number one, we are trying to uh, apply the same tools, for example, surgery and, and pharmaceuticals, widespread to everyone. And so there is a real uh, over overprescription and overuse of these tools, right? So not everything needs to be hit with a hammer. Not everything needs to be cut with a scalpel and not everything needs to be drugged. Where the success lies is when we start to refine more and more and more. In other words, limit more and more where these tools would be A, most applicable, B, most successful, and C, most limited and just use as a tool to get the success you need. So unfortunately, we're using the same tools uh, to broad spectrum. And in that, uh, there is a lot of uh, unintended outcome. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and and in essence, like uh, uh, just from a patient perspective, like um, I know when when I saw you previously uh, for the uh, the treatment that I had, I was in excruciating pain, uh, my rotator cuff uh, and and my back, and I could not think straight. Literally, I was uh, I was just the the only thing I could think about was my pain. I couldn't sleep properly. Couldn't even lie down properly. And so it affected my quality of life, affected relationships, family, because uh, when somebody's in pain, it affects uh, not only yourself, 100%. but everybody in your family. 100%. and Your career, your work, your thinking, your
2: family, your relationships, 100%. And,
1: and, and by going to you, and I remember um, uh, you'd mentioned, uh, uh, you know, and literally it was a, a late night call, and thank God you, uh, you answered the call and was able to get your clinic to uh, make space for an appointment the next day. But literally, uh, after the treatments, uh, the various modalities that you uh, provided, uh, within two months, I was, I was back to normal. So it was like 10 out of 10 pain, at least for me, and yeah. really couldn't focus, think straight. Um, and, and it just really affected my quality of life, my family, business, everything. And so by just having your training, your ability, and your expertise, and your experience, be able to help that specific pain which was affecting the whole quality of life and everything in my life the whole package and and pain was the root of it Uh, which which again a lot of people you know in north america would would go towards uh, drugs which uh, i wasn't ready to do
2: you weren't ready to do maybe you had some hesitation but once you're in that stage even if you have a hesitation for a while if you don't have any other door fortunately you and i have a good relationship where you had some awareness that maybe uh, Dr. Sheikh, uh, you know, works in another sphere and I don't want to just jump on the drugs or surgery. And so you were able to contact me. Most people, as you know, they either don't have the awareness or the resources uh, or just, you know, the context to say, you know what, maybe I need to approach this some different way. So that's why most people, you know, listen, medication now is is, is advertised on television, which is really not so logical because you shouldn't have to advertise it, right? And, and we grew up in a pain medication model so as children that's just what we're taught and what we understand so most people and maybe even yourself perhaps if the pain had gone on for a few more days or weeks and you didn't know any other avenue would go down the pharmaceutical road because you got to do something and Absolutely. right and it's and it's no fault of yours I would say it's, it's a fault of many things but therein lies a very very common story, uh, which I'll share with you, and the danger of the current model and system and the way things work. So, very much like your story, uh, Tariq, whether it was your torn rotator cuff, or your back pain, uh, they're 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 very uh, well-to-do, well-educated, uh, working hard, family member could. C- contributing, constructive members of the community and of society who have an issue like yours, or they have a small knee surgery for a meniscus, or they have a sports injury and they have to have some sort of surgery or recovery or something. And it was the model to put them on heavy duty fentanyl, opioid based pain relievers post-surgery and in uh, unsuspecting patient and well-intentioned healthcare providers, don't get me wrong, their training, physicians, pharmacists, nurses, are at the time, this is safe medication, it's effective medication, it should be prescribed for pain relief to help people through the phase. So the unsuspecting patient doesn't know the highly addictive nature of this medication and they take it for pain relief for a few weeks post-op because their knees healing or their soldier's shoulders healing. And all of a sudden, uh, a month or two in, when the doctor says, okay, well, you don't need this anymore. I'm not going to prescribe it anymore. Uh, that family member, that working guy, that homeowner, that father and husband and so on, he's addicted because it's tickled that part of the brain, which is highly addictive. And now we've got a big, big problem. So he starts to get it uh, uh, um, off the grid. He can't get it through his prescription and his pharmacy anymore. So now he starts to get it on the road, on the street. So he's gotta pay for it because he's addicted. Maybe he tells his family, I need it for pain. That costs a lot of money. So first of all, the home, the bank account, the finances, they all start getting drained because we've got an addiction problem. So he loses his family. i just painting you a common picture of, of, of stories that I hear all the time, especially working in House Call for Humanity. So he loses his home, he loses his family, he loses his job. So now he's getting these drugs on the street, but now he's on the downtown east side and he lives on the street. Now those drugs have no quality control. So they're tainted. They're cut with all kinds of other substances and chemicals. And that is the recipe for the next opioid
1: death. And, and you brought up something, something powerful. powerful. It's a lot of
2: variables, but do you, you see what I'm saying?
1: I, I see what you're saying. And, and then you and I had a discussion when the Muslim care center opened on the downtown East side, which is the ground zero for the fentanyl opioid crisis in North America. There's more per capita drug overdoses and deaths in that uh, area than, than anywhere in North America. And then uh, we had discussed and you had mentioned that, that you were planning to, to do work there from part of your community work and humanitarian work that you do uh, overseas, but, but bringing it here to, to people locally. And so we plan together with the, the overall Muslim Care Centre team to have you come with your team to start to offer your manual uh, medicine treatments to the people on the downtown east side and uh, and we treated uh, several people on, on on two occasions and because of covid obvi- obviously we weren't able to continue but uh, but let's let's talk about that experience because again uh, for you to take your time out your staff your team and get this set up and 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 uh, our team kind of going to to get the patients Let's talk about uh, that impact with you coming specifically to where the problem is and helping people that may have never, ever come across manual medicine and to be able to be helped in the way that you were able to help them.
2: Right. So there's there's a preface to that. uh, And uh, like you said, bringing manual medicine to those people who may never have had exposure to it, may never have had access to it. So the preface to this is that Like yourself, with your shoulder rotator cuff tear and with your back pain, uh, thankfully, most of us and members of our community are uh, um, established and have the means and resources that we can seek out um, some treatments or therapies if they're going to benefit us and even if they're going to cost us. Um, But a vast majority of uh, the needy population do not have either access, awareness, or the means and resources. So House Call for Humanity started out with a couple of different premises. One was that manual medicine, because it's not fully funded, um, needs to be uh, more accessible to those people who could benefit. So people who don't have uh, um, the financial means, transportation, uh, extended health insurance, and stuff like that, They just don't have access. So so House Call for Humanity was to bring manual medicine to those people who can't access it. Secondly, by going there and bringing it to them, we start to learn that uh, very much like the the House Call for Humanity medical missions we did overseas in in Pakistan and other places, uh, people in rural villages, people who are poor, people who don't have access, um, they are uh, absolutely... uh, you know, uh, blown away by the results and the response to treatment because they don't have awareness, access, or context to what manual medicine can do for them. So they almost don't have any expectation. And when uh, a serious problem that's causing pain or dysfunction or inability to be mobile and independent uh, resolves, uh, people's pain goes down that's the first thing I know that's the focus here pain is a big thing because that puts them in a different category but not only does their pain go down as their function improves or their mobility improves and it improves from the inside out their self-esteem starts to improve they almost you know you what we watched when we went to the Muslim Care Center and did these uh, medical camps there providing manual medicine with the team we watched people stand up and say oh my god it's the first time I could feel my body again or oh my god the pain feels so much better and it feels like it's real it's from the inside out instead of I'm just numbing it from the outside in so those kinds of comments yeah go ahead
1: agreed and and just just some of the one guy one younger guy was in so much pain but after the treatment he was able to go get a job uh very quickly and able to do uh, a certain warehouse work that he wasn't able to to do but but by having the treatment, he was able to be in a situation where he was strong enough to start uh, working. I
2: remember, I remember the, the, the patient you're alluding to. Uh, it was a young guy who came in. He was hobbling. His one leg wasn't functioning so well. And he said, and he was he was clean for the recent six weeks. That was his thing. He goes, I haven't used in six weeks. And I'm living in a room here somewhere downtown downtown Eastside. And I've been clean. And I'm going for the medical Uh, and if I pass the medical, I can get this job in the warehouse and get my life back on track. So if his back is bent and his one leg is not working so well and he was in pain, and we use tools such as medication to help him with his pain, we really haven't changed his functionality, his self-esteem. We haven't really addressed the core problem. So now I remember the gentleman you're talking about a young guy. So he got a treatment. We went through everything. He got up. He could bend his back. He could move. His leg was stronger. And uh, I think you were there. You saw what he said, obviously. He was like, I can get to that medical now. I can pass the medical now. I can get my job and get back on track. So yeah, like you were in pain and you talked about how it affects your whole life, your relationships, your family, your work, your self-esteem. It's the same for all of these people. But these people are shall I say, living a life, like their whole life is under that pressure, that that, that, that pressure cooker of all the variables that they are, that, that are against them, right? The socioeconomic barriers, the mental health barriers, the addiction barriers, the financial barriers, the barriers of access, the barriers of um, discrimination, the barriers of, you know, all of these barriers, they're trying to get out from that and Manual medicine, which is highly underutilized and underfunded, which has nothing to do with being unsubstantiated. Let me be clear on that. The underutilization and underfunding of manual medicine has its roots in politics, policy, and money and has nothing to do with uh, how well um, evidence-based and substantiated it is. So we had to create this organization to create a wedge to get in there and start providing this service to people who can't access it otherwise. And you saw some of the results.
1: And this was, as far as I can tell, the first of its kind in North America. This approach to a hard hit problem area where, again, uh, Yusuf just shared a statistic, almost 14 to 1600 overdoses in 2020 and the year's not over. So I will say, the lineup of people that came to get the treatment, people had pain in their face, dark faces. And then you do the treatment, their faces, they're smiling, they're energetic. A lot mm-hmm. of them had been living and coping with pain for 20 years, 15 mm-hmm. years, whatever it colored their whole life. Their, their whole view on life was being in that paradigm of pain. And yeah. that's how they saw it. And by you doing the work that you did in the two, uh, the two uh, sessions over a couple of months that we did it before COVID, it really impacted their lives again that one gentleman was able to get back to work uh, some elderly people that were in so much pain you helped alleviate that pain and helped to increase their quality of life so many many stories there and now with this kind of model i know there is an introduction to even uh, some ministers uh, in, in government that 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 came aware of the work that uh, that you've been doing and so just even going forward past uh, post pandemic, hopefully, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, everything gets back to normal next yep. year. Exactly. But but just going forward again, with the approach, you, one thing you did mention, you were at a conference and you 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 pitched the vision of House Call for Humanity and the amount of doctors that wanted to sign up and participate locally within North America and abroad. Please talk about the, the desire of professionals like yourself uh, that you tapped into that want to give back.
2: So uh, there's definitely uh, an inherent uh, quality amongst doctors. I think that's why we get into the field. So men and women who enter the profession uh, of medicine, uh, they have some commonalities, I think, which is a desire to help people. And so uh, what is a human nature instinct and what is also very much embedded in us from our deen and our religion um, is the concept of giving back and to those in need. So I think everyone has that in them. There's a fulfillment when you're able to give and help someone. So as doctors, um, when I spoke to many in my profession and in other professions about joining this mission, House Call for Humanity and helping others, um, I found uh, an overwhelming response where they wanted to join for a couple of reasons. Number one is there wasn't really, uh, again, you talked about House Call for Humanity being the first of its kind. It's really the first of its kind in so many levels. One was there wasn't really a platform established where doctors could jump on board and provide this type of service or care um, locally or abroad. And what I mean by that is we are all very aware of uh, excellent, you know, international organizations. Some of the big, the big fish like, um, you know, MSF and uh, Red Cross, Red Crescent. Um, with whom I've had numerous conversations with some of their executives, uh, they are big established organizations, well-funded, who are very well positioned to deal with crisis, uh, calamity of some sort, uh, be it an earthquake, a war, a famine, uh, some sort of an event. Um, and then these uh, organizations will mobilize their forces and get in there and they do amazing work. Where an organization like House Call for Humanity, a smaller sort of uh, boutique grassroots organization comes in, this not-for-profit, is really starting to help address people who live in those circumstances. So there wasn't a catastrophe or calamity or crisis or event um, that mobilized, but these are people who just live like that. So we have people like that overseas and abroad, as you know, uh, where we did many camps in in rural uh, villages and and rural provinces. And then we have people living in those circumstances right here at home, downtown Eastside. So charity begins at home. People are living in these circumstances uh, and there's not really this tremendous number of people doing work, but there wasn't a platform where doctors could jump in and provide manual medicine uh, sort of a low-tech, high-effective, low-cost, low-maintenance, high-results impact. And so that's where this platform came in.
1: And and even with your missions, so you've done overseas missions. Um, we talked about Pakistan. I remember seeing the videos and, and you're talking about, you know, how, how, the way that you help the people in rural areas. And again, I would imagine um, you mentioned uh, Doctors Without Borders, the Red Cross. So when, when they go into these kind of areas uh, uh, where, where they provide much needed help, the focus is on food, shelter, clothing, uh, medicine, medical supplies, that kind of stuff. So pain and pain management uh, is is not necessarily the highest priority per se. but, But, but what you said by, by uh, doing the treatments that you did in these rural villages that would never have access to your type of treatment, literally lives were changed. Could you, changed. Just, just for that overseas experience and those, those anecdotal stories of the patients that you treated in the villages and how their lives changed.
2: Okay, so um, first let me uh, commend you on your uh, interviewing skills, Derek. You've come a long way. Your, your questioning is right on the point and right on the money and you cut right to the chase. So what I was going to say to your question is that uh, you are right. Uh, The uh, tremendous and important and necessary and valuable services that organizations like MSF and Red Cross and Red Crescent and many other uh, international aid organizations provide, generally speaking, uh, in a broad sense, are for those emergency type of needs. Um, And pain management, and alleviating pain, just like you shared with us your personal story when you were in pain, it affected your work, it affected your uh, thinking clearly, it affected your relationship at home with the children, your wife, it affected your ability to, to go out and, and you've, uh, to, to be active and your self-esteem. So that that is commonality across the board. Pain affects people from the inside out, but there's not really uh, a much uh, um, uh, uh, resources and much infrastructure built to help people with their pain a over a long uh term and b in a manner to get them out of that as opposed to just manage it so when we went to uh we've done three medical missions overseas uh and when we went to villages very poor villages uh, in rural punjab and pakistan i'll share with you a couple of anecdotes so unlike here in Canada where people may have a little concept or awareness that, you know, I could go for some other type of treatment, physiotherapy, chiropractic, massage, rehab, something. They might have some awareness. Uh, what first thing I, that I learned is in those rural areas where people are uh, uneducated uh, and, and very poor, um, I mean, some of them are living on a, not even a dollar a day, Uh, type of means Um, they don't even have a concept there's no context in their mind that there's such a thing as someone could do rehab or physio or chiropractic or manual medicine that it might benefit them so first of all they don't even have an awareness of that so in in that regard, there's no expectation they don't even know it secondly they don't have the means they don't have the resources they don't have the funding they don't have the access so all of that put aside when we went in there with our team and started providing treatments what I learned was, I'll give you two anecdotes, one was the lady who, much like you, had in a shoulder injury. She was reaching up for something in her, in her hut or whatever, and she fell down off the stool, landed on the shoulder. And it had been like that for about three months when we went in. So she couldn't move her arm. She was a young mother. She had a baby that she was nursing, plus other kids. She was the daughter-in-law in in her home, so she had her parents-in-laws and her husband and and so on. You know how the family structures are over there. My point is that her injury was left to heal however it could heal, and so however it healed on its own left her with a lot of uh, dysfunction and immobility. So what I learned is when people have injuries over there and they heal on their own, whatever disability, impairment, or dysfunction they're left with, that now became their identity that was who they were so this young mother and young lady and young wife uh, she was the woman who can't use her arm now that's just and that was her identity she accepted it and everyone else accepted it and that was really hard for me to accept because over here just like you had your injury people refuse to accept that they want to do something about it but they don't know they can and forget that they don't even have the means so we went in there, we went uh, to the same village three times a week for, for two weeks. So that was six times where we would treat the same people. And uh, with manual medicine and the rehab we did, she got 90 to 95% of her shoulder back. She got function in her arm. That was great. We expected that. What we didn't understand and what we didn't realize was the impact it had on her self-esteem her identity of who she was and her value and worth in her home, in her family, in her village, in her community. Because it was completely affected by her injury and then it was completely restored.
1: And, and she was likely resigned to it for the rest of her life.
2: Resigned. That's exactly it. We, people accept it. People accept it. So the second anecdote was the guy who was in a rickshaw accident. So I guess he, he drove a rickshaw. Uh, out there in the villages and he was hit by uh, a tractors that work on the farms there or something. He injured his hip. His injury was a couple of years old. I don't know if it was fractured or what happened back then, but he had injured his hip and he couldn't walk and his back was bent, pain down his leg. So he resigned and accepted his injury and he was no longer working. And he was sort of uh, incapacitated, uh, uh, non earning father and husband and male in his household. And you know how our society structure is over there. Uh, we've got a, a man who is at, you know in his 40s who is a, supposed to be providing for his family and he's sitting at home because he's resigned to this injury and he's now the guy who got hurt in the rickshaw accident and he can't work anymore and he can't provide for his family. So there's so much impact there uh, on his identity, on his self-worth, his self-esteem and how others view him in his family, in his village and so on. So he was one of the patients we saw. And lo and behold, with the help of Allah he's the one who gives shifa. Two weeks in, six sessions later, he's walking, his back is straight, his leg moves. He was telling us he's going that day with his brother to go and get another rickshaw and get back to work. And this was after two or three years. So the impact is uh, an astronomical ripple effect in areas we don't see. And the other thing I want to touch on there, Tariq, is that those uh, medical camps we held in those villages, they told us that there were many medical and and, uh, uh, um, charitable organizations that came and set up camps. And they said sometimes they would come and do diabetes screening and they would give them medication for diabetes. Sometimes it would be blood pressure, heart disease screening, and then they would get some medication for that. Sometimes it would be screening for their eyes or for their teeth. So, what I mean to say is, there's a lot of uh, uh, very uh, categorical type of services that good organizations and well intentioned, well hearted people are trying to do. But there was nothing where they would, an organization could go in and take educated, licensed, experienced manual medicine specialists, go in, low cost, low tech, low maintenance. And treat people for their pain and their dysfunction, and get them back to work, and get them back to life, and get them back to self worth and feeling good within a few weeks. And so that's that was uh, an eye opener for me.
1: And 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 just going back to your your motivations when you first started, you yourself felt the benefit, and then you went on your missions in overseas, and you saw how it impacted and helped people that would never have access to this mm-hmm. type of treatment. And so now, as you said, charity begins at home as well. And we talked about the downtown east side. Now, uh, Aboriginal communities and uh, First Nations, and because of systemic racism, uh, alcoholism, uh, drug abuse, because of systemic reasons and and uh, generational uh, uh, systemic racism, mm-hmm. uh, where this type of uh, physical uh, treatment that that you provide, so let's talk about First Nations. And I know you've assembled an impressive team uh, with with a, with a very um, strong mandate for Canada and going forward after the pandemic. So please do discuss the, our First Nations community and neighbors.
2: Well, the the our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in the First Nations. Uh, you know, the medical research, uh, statistical research uh, shows that uh, there's a big gap, social gap. Uh, amongst the general metrics in society and our First Nations communities, right? There's a 2001 census that said that average, this is 2001, so I know it's 20 years old, but at that time, average individual income in the population was almost $30,000. And uh, for someone who is of any Aboriginal ancestry, it was 19. That was at that time. And for someone living on a reserve, it was 14. So the average income for someone who was living on a reserve versus someone in the general population is half. That's just a start, but forget about that. Even those people, as you said, because of systemic mm, discrimination and racism that's kind of built into institutions that we're starting to just explore now, um, they had and still have an uphill battle in almost every sphere of society. So one of the biggest ones that affects them, of course, is access to healthcare not just because many live in remote communities or on reserves, um, but even those who live in the city, um, access to healthcare, the appropriate healthcare, um, healthcare that's delivered indiscriminately, um, these were big challenges. So of course, when we went in with our team uh, providing manual medicine, um, you know, we're looking at everyone equally. You know, everyone has challenges and everyone is coming from a, a position of, of need. So where, where I and our medical team can go in and provide these services, we're not uh, discriminatory in any way. So all of a sudden we see people who uh, in our First Nations community who are very much used to be being treated differently um, in many um, services where they're being provided, they're being treated equally and they're, you know, their thankfulness and they can feel the genuineness and the sincerity of the doctors delivering the treatments. Um, That was over and above the medical results they got.
1: And in terms of your team, maybe if you wouldn't mind talking about your team, like the actual uh, team members, just like yourself with with, uh, uh, a professional background and experience like yourself that you've been able to assemble and then others uh, from uh, a governmental or uh, the kind of um, a talent that can help all the multiple aspects to really uh, start to get house call for humanity and this much needed service and treatment out to the vulnerable populations throughout North America and potentially the world. So let's
2: talk about the team. So our team is, of course, uh, the core of the team and the, uh, the, the backbone, pardon the pun, of the team, are medical uh, manual medicine specialists, right? So we're talking about First and foremost, chiropractors, because they have the highest degree of uh, education and training in manual medicine. And then we also talk about uh, physiotherapists, uh, osteopaths, physiatrists. So people who are specialized in manual medicine. So that's really the core of our team. And as we started to embark on these missions, we have other healthcare uh, uh, specialists who also want to contribute and join in. So whether they were dentists, whether they were medical doctors uh, who are general practitioners, whether they're medical doctors who might be orthopedic surgeons or diabetes specialists, um, we have had all of those types of of professions and specialists join our missions where they understood that the core of our influence was manual medicine to help people out of pain and to regain function and and thus regain, their esteem and their influence and in all those spheres of their life, so these other specialists would also come on board and provide uh, some screening or some uh, treatment or some um, effectiveness in their area of specialty. Um, so what I what I'm trying to allude to is that the the crux of it is we have uh, chiropractors, men and women, uh, of all different uh, ethnic backgrounds. We have uh, you know, people like myself of South Asia, we have Asians, Chinese. We have, of course, local and Canadian. We have First Nations. So we have specialists that are diverse to begin with in the, med- in the manual medicine uh, arena. And then we have other specialists who join us sort of on a rotating basis, depending on who wants to join in, to provide some screening or some service based on their area of expertise. So we don't exclude anyone just because we're dealing with manual medicine. If we've got a camp set up and we've got a platform ready to go and there are some licensed uh, healthcare provider that wants to join and provide their services. We'll take them on and set up a booth or a table or a room or an office for them, where people can go and benefit from their service as well.
1: So, a holistic, multidisciplinary approach where everyone's bringing their professional talents and skills and abilities to yeah. come together with a common cause of the well-being and the upliftment of the patients. So, really assembling said, teams.
2: What you said again is very important. So having that common cause or that common goal. So keep in mind, and this is kind of how my clinic is set up, uh, which you've attended uh, here in Burnaby. Uh, What you just talked about, I just wanna touch on. So so very, the, the common multidisciplinary model is like the common multidisciplinary clinic. And what I mean is we got a reception room with a receptionist and a bunch of chairs, and then you got a long narrow hallway with a bunch of doors And this door is one specialty, and the next door is someone else, the next door is someone else. You got all these doors, and the patient goes in one door, and the door is closed, and they receive that service. So there's no collaboration, there's no integration, and there's no real common uh, uh, um, intent or model or philosophy behind what's going on. Although many of those clinics are called, you know, integrated medicine, they're really not. So that was what I avoided in our clinic which has, as you've seen, a round or circular design. There's no narrow hallway with a bunch of doors and everyone is truly collaborative, understanding the main mission is to help people to live a full lifestyle and a full functional lifestyle. So same thing when we did our missions, we didn't wanna bring on all these specialists who do different things and do very good work without putting it underneath an umbrella where it was gonna be truly collaborative And everyone had the same intent and function and and objective in mind. So whether it was a dentist, whether it was a heart specialist, whether it was a a, a, um, obstetrician, gynecologist, or whether it was a cardiologist, we've had all of these people join us. They understood that the main focus of this, the intent and the philosophy was to help people to regain their function, their self-esteem, to understand that their health really begins from the inside out and doesn't need to be uh, fed them uh, from the outside in. And so everyone worked in that sort of uh, context. And that made a big difference, Tariq. It made a big difference to people's response to treatment is how they perceived it.
1: Absolutely. And and now with with the, the COVID-19 epidemic, and obviously a lot of our missions were done before the pandemic. And okay. right now we're seeing skyrocketing, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, mental health issues, drug and alcohol addictions, because people are isolated. There's no more social connection the way it used to be. Even now, we're under lockdown in, 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 in British Columbia and families can't visit. That social outlet is not there. So and the physical touch and, and, and even to get treatment. So how have you found within the context of the pandemic uh, to, to still help a people uh, in the midst of all these challenges we're facing?
0: Well, first
2: of all, chronic pain and mental health are, 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 are very much uh, intertwined and linked. There's uh, much uh, valid medical research and statistical analysis linking chronic pain and poor mental health. So here we're starting with that to begin with and then the COVID crisis is just, you know, put on another layer on top of it that's hard for people to escape now. So the mental health aspect of this has has just hit those people who were already hard hit, it's hit them the hardest. It's hit them more than the rest of us who have coping strategies, coping resources uh, to our avail. So we've been bombarded with requests and and, um, as to when we're going to resume the camps, Uh, people are understanding that in this epidemic, in this pandemic, why we're not down there doing the work that needs to be done at this time um but I know the need has gone up and I think our, our our brothers and sisters who work in and specialize in mental health will tell you in more detail in in which areas it has affected people but I would say in my experience and what I've seen is obviously one is loneliness one is uh, where people feel disconnected to even the small amount of support structure they had, whether it was the local, uh, social housing or social health uh, uh, office, whether it was the people like us who would go down and provide services. So many of the the little strings of social support that people had who were already hard hit have been cut during this pandemic. So I feel for those people. I pray for those people and I can't wait to get back down there with our team and roll up our sleeves and start helping them. Um, but I know that the mental health uh, um, Statistics have gone up tremendously, and uh, we have a lot of work to do.
1: Absolutely, and uh, you know we're looking forward that hopefully with the vaccines that are coming out for COVID, um, hopefully this this coming uh, spring summer, maybe some semblance of normalcy will will come back. The missions locally and abroad can continue. Um, I know you've been. Uh, uh, with the teams that you've assembled and even all the doctors that you've introduced your work to for house call for humanity there's a lot of professionals that want to engage again the first of its kind the type of missions that are addressing pain physical pain that affects mental health uh, ex- exacerbates addiction problems all of these things it's that holistic approach because food shelter and clothing are just one piece of the puzzle if somebody's in chronic pain it's going to affect every facet of, the, of, of their, their life and, and um, our prayers and, uh, and, uh, and uh, support in whichever way we can. We're, we're grateful to, 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 uh, to be um, uh, assisting however we can get this message out. Um, and again, you are based in Burnaby, Align a Chiropractic in Burnaby. I urge any of the listeners that if you're in pain, loved ones in pain, uh, there is at least, as far as my personal experience, uh, Dr. Gohar Sheikh can can really help and uh, urge anyone to 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 reach out to his clinic. His team is fabulous, very professional. And again, uh, to support uh, the local work and the the work abroad, uh, house call for humanity. Eline chiropractic, Dr. Gohar Sheikh. Thank you, my friend. I really appreciate your time thank for this you. this Thanks interview for time, and uh,
2: thank you for your work as well, Tarek. Uh, something that is very crucial to the community, and we re- really, really applaud your time and effort in helping the community. Thanks again, Charlie.
1: Thank you, brother. And I know you got to run for for your next meeting, so thank you, Dr. Gohar. We'll talk very soon, and and so, we'll talk soon. Hopefully, meet you. very soon and carry on the work that we have planned coming up. Absolutely. Thank you again. Take care. Take care. Bye now.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Muslim Care Centre podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe if you support our work. Also, please donate via e-transfer to the Muslim Care Centre at muslimfoodbank.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.